Once upon a time, I would have told you that the Bible contained the literal words of God straight from his lips to the inked paper that we read today. How did this happen? Did God pen it himself and then fax down a copy from heaven, or did he render human subjects temporarily unconscious so as to use their hands for the task? The great part about believing was that I didn't have to explain because faith was the conviction of things not seen, and I felt convicted to believe the Bible was faultless despite my inability to see how this was possible in light of all the centuries and languages and translations and fallible copiers through whom it had passed. Faith just meant I believed it anyway, as my mom once responded when I asked her why the Bible condones slavery. So you think you could have written the Bible better than God? Some things just weren't questioned. Today, I no longer consider myself a biblical literalist. In this paper, I want to show those like me from such a background that the Bible does not mandate or even advocate for this approach to Scripture and that biblical literalism, in fact, endangers the heart of the Christian faith. Thus began my master's capstone paper at Vanderbilt Divinity School some 12 years ago now. Fortunately, I made the mistake of asking the one token evangelical professor on faculty there to serve on my review panel, or else my paper would have received highest honors and been published to live on in infamy somewhere in the deep recesses of the seminary's library uh, basement. But despite how difficult, somewhat embarrassing it is for me to go back now and reread that paper, I think I bring up some important points there for those of us who are evangelical, Bible-believing, literalist Christians today that we need to take seriously. For starters, what is our view of Scripture? What is the Bible? Is it literalism? Is, it, is the Bible literally the word of God? The words of God? If so, then secondly, how do we answer what I label in my paper, the inescapable problems with literalism. It's the same kinds of issues that your unbelieving co-workers and neighbors, family and friends have with the Bible that causes them to reject Christianity on multiple grounds. And I'm going to quote from my paper again now. Quote, the evidence ranges from the scientific, the fact of evolution versus 6,000-year-old world, the fact that the earth is round and revolves around the sun, contrary to Job 38, 13, Psalm 104, verse 5, to the historical evidence, Cyrus of Persia, not Darius the Mede, we know from history, was the one who overthrew the Babylonian Empire, contrary to Daniel 5, contrary to Luke chapter 2, Quirinius was not the governor of Syria while Herod reigned as king, to internal biblical inconsistencies. For example, the order of creation in Genesis. Was it plants, then animals, then humans, as Genesis chapter 1 claims, or humans, then plants, then animals, as chapter 2 says? Or the timeline of Jesus' crucifixion. Did it happen at noon on the day before Passover, as per the Gospel of John, or at 9 a.m. on the day of Passover itself, as per Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Perhaps the most troubling for a majority of non-Christians in our society today are the ethical implications of treating the Bible as one's highest Moral authority, doesn't that make you homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic, bigoted, pro-slavery, pro-capital punishment, even for silly Old Testament offenses like working on the Sabbath or cursing your parents, you get killed. Now, 
I think today there are good answers for all those questions. But they're real questions and they deserve real answers. First Peter 3.15 calls us as believers to be ready with answers to defend the faith for those who are asking. But this morning my aim isn't to try and answer all those questions for you, work our way through all those objections to the Bible. Even if we had the time, I don't think that would be the best use of it. Because the truth is you can always find answers that you want to find. See, you and I aren't nearly as rational and logical as we like to think we are. We think, well, I'll just examine all the relevant evidence and then I'll make up my mind on the topic. But in reality, even our interpretation of the evidence, even our analysis of what counts as evidence, what is and isn't relevant, it's all colored by our preconceptions and our desires. At the end of the day, whether we believe in God or we don't, whether we trust the Bible or we don't, it's not so much a matter of our heads as it is a matter of our hearts. And so that's what I want to go after this morning. It's your hearts. To show you not just why you should believe in the Bible, but why you should want to believe in the Bible. Specifically, believe three things about the Bible, and I want to point out three things that we ought to believe when it comes to the Bible, and based on those three indicatives, we will conclude with three imperatives. So, Three indicatives, the Bible is, that lead to three imperatives, therefore we should. Throughout this uh, new 11-week sermon series, Entitled Essentials, we're launching this morning. We're going to be unpacking our church's 11-point statement of faith together. You can find all 11 points on our church website if you're curious where we're headed these next 11 weeks. These are our essentials as a church. There are non-negotiables. We have members here at West Hills who speak in tongues and others who think that's a load of bunk. We have amillennialists, postmillennialists, premillennialists, dispensationalists, preterists, and many more who don't know what any of those terms mean and frankly don't care how or when Jesus is coming back just that he is. We've got Calvinists and those who are entitled to your right to be wrong. We, the, the point is we keep the sandbox pretty big here. 11 non-negotiables and you don't even have to believe all those or any of those to come and worship with us to serve with us to join a life group they're just essentials for membership here because we believe they constitute the irreducible foundation of the christian faith but here's what i want to emphasize especially this morning as we start the series of all 11 it's no coincidence that our position on the bible is number one it's the starting point. Now that used to drive me crazy back when I was researching for my master's paper and I was checking these different churches and, and, and denominations, statements of faith. I was flabbergasted by how many of them began their core beliefs with a statement on the Bible. Not God, not Jesus, but the Bible. In my paper I labeled this bibliolatry, it's the worship of the Bible. It's idolatry, putting the Bible in God's rightful place. Surely God must be the most foundational of all the foundations, or perhaps Christ, right? After all, it's called Christianity, not Biblianity. But 12 years later now, as the lead pastor of one of those churches, 
I can tell you why we start with the Bible. It's because all those other ten beliefs, indeed, all the rest of our beliefs as Christians in life ought to flow out of our belief that the Bible is God's word. Listen, there's absolutely no reason to believe that Jesus is the Son of God or to believe that he died on a cross for your sins if you don't believe the Bible. Similarly, you might come to believe in some kind of a God without the Bible, maybe the God of deism, who cared just enough to to pull the trigger and make the big bang bang and then he left but you're certainly not going to believe in a personal, loving, Trinitarian God, the God of the Bible as he really is without his word. And so our view of the Bible then really is in many ways the most foundational of all these 11 foundations. This is really important stuff this morning. And so I invite you to stand with me as you're able once again out of reverence for the reading of God's word I will read it for us, our launching passage for the morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, we, we believe it's so important, we would love to give you one for free if you visit the info bar. Uh, this morning, when I'm done reading, I want to try something a little different. Typically, here at West Hills, I invite you to respond to God's word I'll say, you know, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll respond with, thanks be to God. This morning, I want to invite you to respond by declaring your belief in God's word. And so what I've done is I've listed the words of our church statement of faith up on the screen for you. If you believe them, whether you're a member of West Hills or not, if you believe that the Bible is God's inspired and errant authoritative word, as we're going to unpack this morning, then I invite you to confess that together with us as a church in response, okay? Hear the word of the Lord, 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now your response. We believe the Bible is the divinely inspired and inerrant word of God with ultimate authority in all matters of faith and life. Amen. You may be seated. We just profess together three important truths about the Bible, and here's how I'll organize them for us as we unpack them. First, what the Bible is. Second, why it matters. And third, what that means practically for our lives. What the Bible is, why it matters, and what that means. Number one, what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God. The divinely inspired Word of God He didn't write it down and fax a copy down from heaven. He didn't turn the human authors into robots, as I tongue-in-cheek joked in my paper. No, God graciously revealed himself in history 
two human authors. God spoke to them his words, and they listened, and they wrote down God's words. And then God superintended, is the verb we, we often use, God oversaw the entire process to ensure that the Bible that we have today is the Bible exactly as God wanted it to be. It is God's word. Second Timothy calls it the sacred writings. Now, I used to teach logic as part of the curriculum I designed for the theology course taught at Culver. Theology is literally theos logos, it's thinking about God, and so I started the course with a unit on logic because you definitely can't think about God if you can't think. But every logical argument basically consists of two parts, premises and a conclusion. Arguments might also, as mine will for you this morning, making an argument, might also contain a third part called consequences, which are like mini conclusions along the way that are built off of prior premises and which support a bigger conclusion at the end. But at the most basic level, argument, arguments want to convince you of something, a conclusion, and they use premises to support that conclusion. For example, I could argue, just an example, I could argue that you should all have a Bible with you here at church this morning. Argument might go like this. Premise one. When you're at church, it's best to have a Bible. Premise two, you are currently at church. Conclusion, therefore, you should have a Bible right now. Now, if the conclusion follows logically from the premises, and if all the premises are true, then it's a sound argument. Now, if you want to poke a hole in that argument, you're going to have to take issue with one of the premises. In this case, probably premise one. Maybe you believe you don't need a Bible at church because I put all the words up on the screen for you anyway. But then I would counter that you trust me way too much. I could be up here misquoting or mistranslating or just inventing verses out of thin air, for all you know, unless you have the whole Bible memorized, to fact check me. And then you could counter my counter argument by pointing out that the Bible itself says that you should trust your pastors. And then we keep debating back and forth. But in any case, to poke a hole in this argument, you'd have to go for premise one. Why? Here's what I'm getting at. Because premise two is what's called an axiom. An axiom is a premise that is so self-evident, it requires no proof. It is universally accepted. Indeed, it is definitional. It's the level of, of a definition. This is church. What we're doing here right now, this morning in this place, this is church. Church this is how the Bible defines church, even how the secular dictionary defines church. Don't have to prove it to you. I can't prove it to you. Either trust the definition or you don't. What's my point? I want you to understand and appreciate this morning that our belief that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God, it is axiomatic to the Christian faith. Axiomatic. It is the very definition of what we understand the Bible to be as people of faith, and that's ultimately what this boils down to, a matter of faith. Okay? By definition, you can't prove something that you believe by faith. If you could prove it, it wouldn't require faith, right? Faith really is hoping for things you can't see. Faith is like an axiom. It can't be proven. I can't prove that this is church, it just is. You can't prove that one plus one equals two. It just does. And I can't prove that the Bible is the word of God. It just is. And you accept it by faith or you don't. 
Now, some of you, like me, who struggle with faith, who like evidence, who like airtight reasons to believe stuff, are going to point out, well, wait a minute, I can too prove that the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God. You just read the evidence for us a moment ago. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's theopneustos, God-inspired. See, he says so himself. God said it, that settles it. Well, for you, for me, but not for somebody who doesn't already accept the words that we're quoting as divinely inspired scripture. You see the circular reasoning there. It's the logical fallacy of begging the question. The Bible must be God's word because it says so, and it's never wrong because it's God's word. This sermon was difficult for me to prepare because I'm an expository preacher. I like to take a passage of scripture and exposit it. Interpret it, explain it, help you apply it in your everyday life. Take it for granted that this is the proof of how you should live this week. Because if the Bible really is the word of God, then what the people of God need more than some pastor's topical musings or funny jokes or relevant life tips, more than any of that, God's people need to hear from him on Sundays. And so that's what we do every Sunday here at West Hills. Every other Sunday, every other Sunday, it's my utmost privilege to stand up here in the pulpit and serve as God's spokesman, his mouthpiece, to tell you what he's telling you through his word. And simply exposit. But this morning, I can't do that. I mean, I can. I can point you to all the passages where the Bible itself talks about how important it is Passages like 2 Timothy 3 that we already read, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It wasn't just human. Humans writing, no. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's divinely inspired. 2 Peter 1. Isaiah 40, uh, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Matthew 24, 35. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God's word is eternal. Hebrews 4, 12. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul from spirit. Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. Isaiah 55, 11, my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. God's word is powerful. Jeremiah 15, 16, God's word is our joy. Deuteronomy 32, 47, God's word is our life. Psalm 130, verse 5, it's our hope. Psalm 119, verse 28, it's our strength. Psalm 119, verse 50, it's our comfort. Psalm 119, verse 105, it's our guide. Psalm 119, verse 72, it's our treasure. By the way, you want to guess the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119, you want to guess what it's all about, devoted to? God's Word. Listen, as an expository preacher, if I could just use the Bible to convince you that the Bible is the divinely inspired, true, eternal, powerful, joyful, life-giving, guiding, comforting, strengthening, hope-filled Word of God, then I would. I'd do it. I'd be set. I'd have all the proof I need. The problem is you can't actually accept it as proof until you've accepted by faith 
that the Bible is already all those things. It's axiomatic. You can point to other evidence, both external and internal. Externally, the earliest copies we have in the New Testament date back to within decades of their authorship. We have over 24,000 New Testament manuscripts. The Greek originals are over 99.5% accurate to one another. Archaeological discoveries of time and time again validated the Bible as a reliable source of historical information. Internally, you can point out that the Bible contains over 2,000 prophecies that have already been fulfilled from the Old Testament prophets' predictions that God would judge his people by sending them into exile in Assyria and Babylon predicting crazy specific things before it happened to the 351 Old Testament prophecies specifically about the Messiah that were fulfilled perfectly in the person of Jesus. But again, a skeptic is going to take all that. What he's going to see, she's going to see, is the 0.5% inaccuracy in the manuscript consistency. The biblical, biblical accounts that archaeology and science seem to dispute, refute, and whether or not those prophecies were simply all written after the exile had already occurred, that Jesus' followers could have just invented, made up those stories about him to fit with the Old Testament prophecies. At the end of the day, it's by faith alone. I'm not saying we shouldn't study apologetics, research this stuff, the defense of the faith, by all means. Attend the 9 o'clock service next week and then go downstairs at 1045 for Marshall's apologetics Sunday school class. I'm just saying when you do, temper your expectations. Because in the last 2,000 years, there hasn't been a single person who has ever been argued into the kingdom of God. Because it's not a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart. And so the best that we can do with our heads is to prove that there really are good reasons to believe that the Bible is what it says it is, but at the end of the day, faith is axiomatic. You either accept it or you don't. You either accept that the Bible is the word of God or you don't. It's unprovable. But here's what I can all but prove for you. Without it, without that faith in the Bible as the word of God, you will be utterly lost in this world. And that's a good segue into point number two. Why does it matter that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God? Because number two, that makes the Bible inerrant. Inerrant means without error. If the Bible is truly God's word, if it is God's, God breathed and God is perfect, God doesn't make mistakes, then it stands to reason, again, appealing to logical argument here. Premise one, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Because it's his word. Premise two, God doesn't lie. That's, again, that's axiomatic. That's definitive of God's character. That's just who God is. He's truth, capital T truth. Therefore, conclusion, the Bible is always true. It never errs. It's inerrant. Now, just because the Bible is the literal word of God, that doesn't mean we interpret every passage of Scripture literally. We have to understand the Bible on its own terms like the pre-sermon video that you watched referenced Song of Solomon. It would be unfair to say that the Bible errs because it describes a woman's breast as clusters of fruit when in reality they're sacks of fatty tissue. Right? Song of Solomon is poetry. 
It's not meant to be interpreted literally, but insofar as we are rightfully discerning what the Bible is actually saying, when it says it, it speaks truly. It speaks inerrantly. That's just a faith claim. That's just something we believe. What does it mean, though, practically for you and me? It means that the Bible is 100% trustworthy. It's totally trustworthy. Let me ask you, where else in this world, a world so full of imperfections, are you going to find that kind of credibility, believe, you know, reliability in the news, in the media, President, the politicians, the election results, the CDC, scientists, the doctors. Who can you trust anymore? My wife is about 90% trustworthy. Being pretty generous. Ben Shapiro, 95% trustworthy for me. Sorry, babe. David Platt, 98% trustworthy for me. But the Bible... It's 100% trustworthy. 100%. Friends, don't you want something that you can trust like that? Don't you need something in your life that you can hang your hat on and trust like that? Turn to God's word. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. Friends, God's word is truth. You can depend on it. You can take it to the bank. Jesus did. Jesus affirmed Scripture's inerrancy. John 17, 7, Jesus declared, Your word, God, is truth. Pastor Matt Smethurst notes that Scripture's truthfulness is so comprehensively assumed by Jesus and elsewhere in the New Testament that entire arguments in the Bible can hinge on appeals to a single word, Matthew twenty two forty five, 45, to the number of a noun, Galatians three sixteen, even to the tense of a verb, Matthew twenty two thirty two. 32. See, Jesus liked to argue too. It's very biblical. Matthew twenty two forty five. 45, that's where Jesus traps the Pharisees by asking them, whose son is the Messiah? And they answer the son of David. And so Jesus quotes to them uh, Psalm 110, and he asks, Okay, if David calls the Messiah Lord, then how is he his son? His argument hinges on a single word, Lord, kurios. Similarly, Galatians 3.16, that's where uh, the Apostle Paul argues from a tight reading of Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, that the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul builds his whole argument on the number of the noun, singular. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, that's where Jesus debates some Sadducees on the resurrection, and he quotes them, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus concludes, therefore, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, because, because God said, I am, not I was. This whole argument hinges on the tense of a verb, single word, number of a noun, tense of a verb. This is how seriously Jesus took 
God's word. He rebuked the Sadducees in that same passage. He said, you err because you don't know the scriptures. Not only is God's word inerrant, but if you don't know it, you will be doomed to be errant, according to Jesus. A related quality then of Scripture is that it is infallible. Infallible means unfailing in effectiveness or operation. You remember Isaiah 55, 11, My word shall accomplish that which I purpose, says the Lord. Do you know what God purposes in his word? What his aim is in inspiring the Bible for us? It's the salvation of your soul. That's what God aims at in his word. James 1.21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 1 Peter 1.23, you've been born again eternally through the living and abiding word of God. God's word is his means of regenerating our hearts, turning a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, a dead heart making it beat again. By grace through faith through Christ in his word. And of course, our featured text for this morning, 2 Timothy 3.15. The, the, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Listen, the Bible doesn't err in its purpose because Jesus himself revealed time and time again. John 5.39, Luke 24.27. John 20, verse 31, Matthew 5, 17. The purpose of Scripture is to point us to Jesus. That's the purpose. He is the purpose, the great aim, the fulfillment, the focus, the climax of all of Scripture. It's all pointing to Jesus. And friends, that's why the Bible is so utterly important. Because no Bible, no Jesus. And no Jesus, no salvation. But if you know the Bible, then you can know Jesus and you can know salvation today through faith in him. Indicative number three, what that means. If the Bible really is the inspired, inerrant word of God, then it is ultimately authoritative. The Bible is ultimately authoritative. As God's undistorted, unfailing word, God's voice, his directive and his guide for his people, the Bible is ultimately authoritative. It is the highest court of appeals for the Christian. In this country, when the Supreme Court rules on a case, that settles it. It is ultimately authoritative now because that's the highest court of appeals in our land, but not for the Christian. Right. The su Supreme Court can decide abortion isn't murder, gay marriage is marriage, people have the right to determine their own gender identities, any number of things. None of it is authoritative for the Christian. For the Christian, Congress can pass laws, the secular majority can socially pressure, your employer can fire you, the devil can tempt you, your own heart, your feelings can mislead you, and they will. Feelings may feel at times such a screw-up. God would never love someone like me. God could never forgive someone like me. The world would be better off if I'd never been born. Some of you may feel like that. 
that you can take comfort this morning because from aberrant sexuality to ungodly self-hatred, our feelings tell us all sorts of lies all the time. Society makes much of our feelings. It's the new ultimate authority. If you feel it, it must be good. It, 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 if you feel it, do it. Say it, think it, go, go, pursue it. I'm here to tell you, if you want to talk about untrustworthy, you would be better off trusting cable news and the politicians than trusting your feelings. Not yourself, not your family, not your feelings, not your closest friends, not even your pastor. No, the, the only ultimately authoritative source of truth is God's word. That is where we go as believers for answers. We want to know God's answers. What does God have to say about this? It is the ultimate cheat sheet right here. Now, if all of that is true, axiomatic premise that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God, consequence, number one, that follows from that premise, therefore the Bible must be inerrant, consequence number two, following from that, therefore the Bible must be ultimately authoritative, then I have three conclusions to my argument to leave you with, three imperatives based on those three indicatives. If that's what the Bible is, then how should we respond as Bible-believing Christians? Number one, we must study it personally. If that's what the Bible is, you better study it personally. Once you have accepted by faith this axiomatic premise that the Bible really is the word of God, it's a pretty straight line to conclusion number one. Would God go to the trouble of inspiring a whole book, writing a whole book for you that he didn't intend you to read, to collect dust on your shelf? No, it's, it's, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Listen, you only get all those benefits. Learning, reproof, training, perfection, being perfected, being sanctified, being made more like Christ. This is the means, this is the, the, the vehicle, the instrument that God uses to accomplish that in the lives of his people. Study it ingest it, digest it, internalize it, soak in it, marinate in it. Joshua 1.8, you shall meditate on this book of the law day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now that was God commanding Joshua back when the Israelites only had the first five books of Moses, the law, to meditate on. And God said, do it. Leviticus, Numbers, all those genealogies and lists of sacrifice and whatever that we all skip over in our Bible in a year plan. God said, yeah, that stuff, meditate on it. Me just soak in it. Internalize it. Memorize It's good for you. How much more so Romans and Ephesians, the Gospel of John. Psalm 119.11, we've got to store up God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. 2 Timothy 2.15, 1 
present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. How handled is your Bible? Ephesians 6, 17, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Take it up, take it up. Look, imagine with me for a minute that your phone was ringing, okay? You look down and the caller ID says, God. And just imagine for the sake of argument, okay, that somehow you knew it wasn't spam. You knew that it wasn't just your best friend, your spouse, who had stole your phone and reprogrammed their contact info and their name is God just to mess with you. You knew somehow that it was real. It was God. It was Yahweh. He's actually on the other line. Now I want you to imagine screening that call, looking at it, and thinking to yourself, eh, I'll listen to the voicemail later putting it back in your pocket so you can go back to streaming Netflix, folding laundry, filing those expense reports at work, chemistry homework. What's my point? That we should never do work or do chores or watch TV, do homework? Should sit around and study the Bible all day long instead? I don't think so. It's not a perfect analogy. Maybe the better analogy is, like what we've got is, is one giant voicemail. Got a voicemail from God, 1,974 page long, if you were to read it out loud, a 70 hour, 40 minute long voicemail from God in your pocket right now, walking around with you all the time. Just waiting on you to press play, to listen to what God has to say to you today, whenever you want, you have access to that. The majority of people throughout history have not whether through illiteracy or just living in a place that Bible is not translated in their language or just not caring, not enough people around that care enough to give them a Bible. They've never even seen a Bible, held a Bible. And we've got it in our pockets all the time. And most of us, myself included, we totally take it for granted. Totally take it for granted. Like, eh, I'll listen to it later. And it's the voice of God. For you. Psalm 119 declares, How sweet are your words, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The word of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Is God's word that precious to us? Brothers, sisters, Joshua 1:8 it promised us that internalizing God's word will make us prosperous and successful. You just want to talk practically. Like practically, do you want to have a great life? Listen, the quality of your life will be indirectly proportionate to the quality of your Bible. Think about that for a second. I'll give you a second to work that out. The quality of your life is going to be indirectly proportional to the quality of your Bible. You want a great life? You better wear your Bible out. You better be in tatters. If your Bible looks like it's brand new, never been touched, I tremble to think about the state of your soul. Imperative number two, if the Bible is the word of God, then we must proclaim it publicly. We already touched on this earlier. Yeah, this is what we do every Sunday here at West Hills, every other Sunday anyway. Let's take a passage, 
and unpack it. Expository preaching, 1 Timothy 4.13. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Acts 20, verse 27, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And listen, that's not just my job. That's not just a Sunday job. I might get paid for it. You get to do it for free every day. You get to do it. That's your privilege. And it's your command. It's God's command to you. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. I can't do that. There aren't enough pastors and missionaries around to do that. That's for you. That's for us collectively as his people. Proclaim it to all the creation. Romans 10, how will they call on him and who they've not believed and how are they to believe in him who they've never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they're sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news is that passage just for missionaries is it who's the missionary at Boeing who's the missionary at Green Trails Elementary School who's the missionary at the Maryland Heights YMCA where you work out who's the missionary at your, your frisbee club you are, right? We're the missionaries. We are the ones who God is sending to preach to them. They've got to hear it before they can even have a chance of believing it. Will we tell them? Will we tell them in love? If it's God's word, they need to hear it. No, if it was really, you had a voicemail from God. Wouldn't you want to like share it with people? Hey, this seems like it's not just for me. It seems like it's for all of us. We, we, we better listen up. Finally, number three, if the Bible is God's word, we can trust it implicitly. We can trust it implicitly. In a world full of shifting tides and sinking sand, God's word is the one unchanging, unfailing constant. We read it already. The grass withers, the flower, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And you can trust it. It's 100% trustworthy. Can I just get very personal but very pragmatic with you this morning as we close? I'll be brief, I promise. Why trust in the Bible by faith as an axiom? Why, why trust that the Bible is God's word? Because life works when you do. Well, that's what I've discovered. I'm just a very practical person. And I tried living my life for many years with other ultimate authorities, <laughs> mostly with myself as the ultimate authority. But I tried, you know, what my, my friend group thought, what my parents thought, what, you know, what my feelings told me, what I wanted. And I tried. I really tried. I mean, right after I, I wrote that paper in divinity school, I, 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 I had went through this whole process, deconstruction, all whatever, just taking scissors to the Bible and cutting out all the parts I didn't like because I was the ultimate authority over the Bible. It doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, you can try it, but it's going to leave you empty. You don't make a very good authority in your own life. God does. He's trustworthy. His word is trustworthy. You can bet your life on it can ground your life in it 
It's a firm foundation. He won't let you down. I've seen, I've tasted. It's sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. It's worth your faith and your devotion. Let's pray.